you've got your Bible, we're going to start in verse 19 today in Genesis chapter 25. Look at what it says. The genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife. So he married later um, in his life. As far as we're concerned, it was, uh, it was much later. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Rebecca gives us some background on Rebecca. We studied this last week. She was the daughter of Bethuel, Syrian for Padam, Aram, sister to Laban. Uh, Laban was the, the used camel salesman we talked about last week. He was a Syrian as well. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Does that sound familiar? Uh, so, so Abraham uh, married Sarah. Sarah was barren. Uh, they had Isaac. Eventually, Isaac uh, takes a wife, Rebecca, and Rebecca's barren. And so he is walking through some of the same frustrations his parents did. Um, but he pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea. And Rebecca, his wife, conceived. But the children, she's got a litter, right? This is more than one. This is not the child. The children struggled together within her, and she said, she prays, um, if all is well, why am I uh, like this? And uh, they, they were, if you have children, especially boys, multiple boys, you know this about boys. They fight with each other. These two are fighting in the womb. They're fighting with each other in the womb, and, and, and Rebecca realizes it, and she's praying, God, if everything is well with this pregnancy, why am I like this? Why do I feel this struggle that's going on inside of me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said this in verse 23, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. Y'all remember that movie Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito? That's what's going on right here. One's going to be stronger than the other. The older shall, be, shall serve the younger. And when her days are fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, and he was like a hairy garment all over. Boy, you got to love to see them baby pictures. A red, hairy little fella. So they called his name Esau, and afterward his brother came out, and his hand took a hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Jacob means held uh, or, or to hold on to. Uh, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter. Uh, he was a tough one, a man of the field, but Jacob was mild. He was tender, tough and tender, these two boys, dwelling in tents, and Isaac loved Esau, because he ate of his game, we see a man right there. Um, his love is contingent upon his stomach. Uh, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And a fatal flaw of parenting right there. They picked favorites in verse 28. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew, for I'm weary, therefore his name is called Edom. Edom means red. You may want to write that down in your Bible. He was red and hairy when he was born, and now he likes red stew. So they say, hey, you're red. Uh, Ginger probably was his nickname. All right. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Uh, and Esau said, look, uh, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? 
Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And he ate and he drank, arose, and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. There's a lot in uh, these few verses in Genesis chapter 25. But I, 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 I see them as lessons, groups of lessons for us to learn, but also to implement in our life. Here's the first group of lessons. Why don't you write this down? There's lessons about life. Uh, lessons about life, life in general, physical life. And we see this. Here's the first lesson about life. Life begins in the womb. In this story, uh, you see these boys in the womb and who knows them. There's the first ultrasound right here in Genesis chapter 25. God reveals what uh, Rebecca couldn't see, uh, God shows her what, what she didn't know. He, he says, you have two nations. Literally, you have two young men. You have twins. There's twins in you. There's multiples. She didn't know that. Uh, this is her first pregnancy. Uh, she didn't know all the things that were going on in her, and yet she prays, and God reveals. God gives her insight into what's going on inside of her. And so contrary to the public belief, contrary to the, uh, the, the, the culture in which we live, life doesn't begin at birth, it begins at conception. And so it goes, it goes right into what Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5 where he said, you knew me in my mother's womb. You knew me and you had a plan for me before I was ever born. At conception, you're the one who gave me life. It, it, it reveals to us what David would write in, in Psalm 139 where he said, you knit me together in my mother's womb. God, your, your hands were there. You put my organs in place. You, you, you constructed me in my mother's womb. And so life begins at conception. That, that's why we are pro-life. That's why we, uh, we feel it's very important as believers who love Jesus and believe that life begins in the womb, that it's important to protect life in the womb. Um, and and we, will, we will do all that we can to, uh, to communicate that and to live that out. Um, now, unfortunately, there are people who, uh, who have made decisions, maybe even in this uh, congregation this morning, you've made decisions to end life in the womb uh, years ago. And, and it seems like another life, and you still carry the guilt and the shame of that decision. But let me tell you this, there's grace even for that. Uh, God loves, God forgives, and God pours grace out, and we see that. It is, it, it's such a pattern uh, so already through the book of Genesis where, where we or, or where his people live and they walk in obedience, and then there's moments of, of disobedience, and yet God still pours his grace out, and we see that over and over and over again. And so if you are in that situation, I didn't even mention this at 8 o'clock, but I just feel led that if you have done that and you, you can't, uh, bear up underneath the shame and the guilt of a decision that you made seemingly a lifetime ago, um, I want you to know something. God pours grace out even on that. Amen? Amen. And so here's the next thing. Lessons about life. Life begins in the womb. God answers prayer. Uh, two times, uh, prayers have been prayed already, uh, starting in verse 19. Uh, we, we get introduced to Isaac and Rebecca, and, and, and they're praying, and they're praying and asking. They're pleading for a son. Now, God had promised Abraham a son in Genesis chapter 12 uh, and, and literally said, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And if so, if, if Abraham was going to be the father of a great nation, that meant that Isaac was going to have to have children, right? 
And so, uh, so, so Isaac was, was leaning on the promise that God had given his father, Abraham, and he's pleading. Now, he did things different than dad did, um, but he, is, he has a wife that's barren just like his mother, and they're walking through that difficult season. So life begins in the womb. God answers prayer. Rebecca prays, and God answers her in verse, uh, in, in verse 23. And, uh, but here's another lesson about life. Each person is uniquely created, uniquely different. I want you to write that down. God's made us all uniquely different. Uh, our, our, our fingerprints are different, or they're unique. Our DNA uh, is unique. There's no other person that's just like you. God's made you different. He's made you differently as far as your physical body. Uh, some of us are tall. Some of us are skinny. Some of us are short. Some of us are round. Uh, some of us have uh, colored hair. Some of us have gray-colored hair. Some of us have skin-colored hair, right? Uh, so, so God's made us differently, and uh, our personalities are different. Some of us are more reserved. Uh, we we kind of tend to uh, stay in the background. Others of us, we, we like to, to be out in the front. Our personality, uh, we, uh, we, we like to communicate. We like to talk. We like to uh, uh, have small talk and make friends, and, and so personalities are different. Everything about us is different, and we see that in these two boys born together as twins, yeah, completely different. Physically, they're different. Um, I don't know what Jacob looked like, but I, I did happen to find a toddler picture of Esau. Look, check it out. This is what Esau looked like. That's not him. There he is. So uh, that, that's what Esau looked like when he was a little fella. Uh, looked just like Elmo. He was red and hairy, all right? And, uh, and, and so I don't know what Jacob looked like, but it, it, it didn't give us the description of Jacob, so I'm going to go with the fact that he wasn't red and hairy, all right? Uh, so, so they looked differently physically, uh, and, and, and how they went about life was different. So uh, we saw that Esau, I, I called him tough and Jacob tender. Why? Because Esau was a skillful hunter. He was the one who went outside. He, this guy liked to sweat. Uh, Esau was the one who would spend more time outside than he would inside. Uh, he's the guy who could go out and he could, uh, he could stop the heart of an animal. He could disconnect from his emotions. Uh, it wasn't just a pretty little animal. When he saw an animal, he saw dinner, right? And so Esau would disconnect from his emotions. He would go out and he would take an animal's life. He would bring it back. He was skillful in what he did. Um, and, uh, and, and he was tough. He was a tough guy. He was a man's man. He would be the guy that we would set up and say, hey, listen, that's the kind of guy you want to be. If you had a little boy, he's like, be like Esau. Jacob, on the other hand, mama's boy, tender, Stayed inside, probably didn't like to sweat. Uh, he would cook what his brother would bring home. And so he was a culinary artist. Um, he uh, probably wore an apron, um, probably crocheted. That's just my, in my mind. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I have him in my mind making Esau socks and hats for the cold weather, winter weather uh, while he goes out hunting. And so tough and tender. They're physically different. God's made them differently. Now watch this. While we in our culture as men, we would say, grow up and be like Esau. And we would even say, don't be like Jacob. Don't, 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 be, don't be a softy. Don't be as a boy. Um, don't be tender. Be, be tough. And that's how we want to raise our boys. But watch this. Not only are they different physically, but they're different spiritually. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Esau was vile. That Esau didn't carry the spiritual baton of his family and his father that Jacob did. 
And so we have to be very careful, don't we, as parents to, to who we're going to celebrate and what we're going to celebrate. I mean, we celebrate athletes and we say, man, we want our kids to grow up and be like that. We celebrate the manly man, uh, 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 those type people. But the one in this story who, uh, who carried the spiritual baton, the one in the story who, uh, who honored God and loved God was the one who was tender. Now, what does that communicate to us? God makes us different. He makes us different. And, and just because uh, your boy may not be uh, tough and God's made him tender, tender, maybe he's not athletic and he's more artistic, um, that, that doesn't make him less than uh, the tough boy. It makes him different because that's how God created him. And uh, it may be the, the very one. What, what we should focus our attention on is not what is physically, the physical attributes of our children, but to, to encourage them to take the spiritual attributes and, and carry the spiritual baton to the next generation. And so we see lessons about life, don't we? Uh, God makes us uniquely different. So, so not only in this story is there lessons about life, there's lessons about living. So that's the second thing I want you to see, a group of lessons about living life, um, how we live our life. And there's four in, under this. And I really, I want you to write these down because I, I believe God uh, gave me these for our church and to encourage you. And I love teaching you uh, God's word. And I believe that uh, God, uh, God speaks through his word uh, to encourage us. And so here, here's the first thing I want you to write down. Lessons about living. Number one, trust God's plan even when you struggle with his timing. Trust his plan. Isaac and Rebecca did better at this than Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, God told them, you're going to have a son. And when the, the pregnancy never happened, they took matters into their own hand. You remember that story. Sarah said, listen, I, the promise must be for you, not me. Um, Hagar is uh, a servant girl here that we brought from Egypt. Um, marry her and have a baby with her. And they did. And, and, and Abraham did and had Ishmael uh, first. And, uh, and it, it was, uh, his, his life is, uh, is, is known for obedience, and, then, and that was one of those moments of disobedience where they, they believed God's plan, but they, they struggled with God's timing. But now here's, here's Isaac and Rebecca, and, and guess what they're doing? They are they're seeking the Lord. Did, did you notice the, the two dates or the two uh, years that uh, the Bible tells us? What, what, how old was Isaac when he got married? The Bible told 40. How old was he when he had Jacob? 60. 20 years, two decades, they waited for her to get pregnant. Two decades. Now, there was 25 years Abraham and Sarah waited for the promise of Isaac, uh, but in the midst of that 25 years, they, uh, 10 years in, they, they took matters in their own hands. And so, so here's Jacob and uh, Rebecca, and, and you know what they do? They just trust God's plan, and they trust God's timing. Now, maybe it was because of Dad and telling him the story that, hey, listen, this, this didn't work out good for us. And you know your stepbrother Ishmael and the contention there. Um, that, that is a mistake that we made. Don't make those same mistakes, right? As parents, we should, we should encourage our children not to make the same mistakes we made. And so here, here we see this. He's heeding 
undoubtedly advice that, uh, that he learned from his father. So trust God's plan even when you struggle with his time. Here's the second thing under lessons about living. Uh, generational curses. You can break them or you can bear them. It's your decision. You, you, have, you have the decision to break them or carry them into the next generation. A generational curse. You say, well, I don't, I don't get it. What's a generational curse? Well, I wrote a couple of them down. These may not be yours. There's hundreds of these. Um, but what a generational curse is, what you have seen, uh, how you've seen things played out. And maybe how your parents handled conflict. Um, and you saw that how it played out. And, and through uh, being raised in that home, uh, you have picked up a generational curse from your parents. Doesn't make them ungodly. Doesn't make uh, them anything. I'm not throwing uh, parents under the bus. I'm just saying that when you're raised in a home for 18 years, uh, you pick up behavioral things uh, that you see modeled for you in your home. And so some of those become curses that we pass on from generation to generation. Funny little story. Uh, there was a newlywed couple and, um, and there, there she's cooking a roast. I've told you this before. And, um, and she's preparing the roast, and she cuts the end off the roast and throws it away and puts the roast in a pot. And this, little, this young married guy's like, what in the world did you just do? She said, well, I cut the end off, and I, and, uh, I put the rest of it in the pot. He said, why would you do that? He, she said, I don't know. That's how my mom does it. And so they get to the mother-in-law's house the next week, and, she, and the, little, the young little married guy's like, hey, listen, uh, I, I got to know. I got to know. My, my sweet little wife cut the end off the roast, threw the rest of the roast, threw that away, and threw the rest of the roast in the pot and cooked it. Great roast. Um, I asked her, why do you do it? She said, I don't know. I do it because my mama did it. And she, he said, I got to know. Why do you do that? He, she said, I don't know. I do it because my mama did it. And so they go to Granny's house at Christmas. And so this young married boy, he's like, okay, Granny, I got to ask you a question. Goes through the whole deal. I'm cooking a roast. Wife cuts the end off, throws it away, um, puts the rest of it in the pot. Um, I said, why are you doing that? She said, I don't know. My mama did it. I talked to mama, your daughter. I said, why do you cut the end off, throw it away, put it in the pot? She said, I don't know. My mama did it. So, Granny, why in the world you cut the end of the roast off, throw it away, and put the rest of it in the pot? She said, my pot was too small. All right? And so, listen, sometimes we carry generational curses. We don't even know why, right? We're, it's just been passed on, um, and we're doing it because it's learned behavior. And so let's go through some of these um, generational curses. Why do you scream when you get angry? <laughs> Ouch. Why, why, do you, why, why when, when things aren't going your way or there's conflict in your relationships, why do you raise your voice um, and holler, <laughs> more than likely, that's modeled behavior, right? You saw your parents handle conflict, and one of them raised their voice. Um, and, and I'll just tell you this, that's a generational curse that has to break. Why? Because that is poor, weak communication. In fact, when you raise your voice, your, your voice you're thinking, they can't hear me, so I'm going to raise it up here. And reality is they turn you off. They don't listen when you raise your voice. And so, so, so that is, can be a generational curse of how to handle conflict and, and we handle it in a weak way. Listen to this. Why do you manipulate people when you don't get your way? 
because you, that may have been modeled for you. In fact, you, you may have made these comments. I'm not going to treat my kids the way my parents, if, if I didn't do things that they wanted me to do, they manipulated me so that I, they could get the, the desired outcome from my life. And, and you made a promise in a mirror one day that you weren't going to do that. And guess what you're doing? <laughs> It's generational, it's learned behavior. You can make a decision, you're either gonna break it or you're gonna bear it, and guess what? Your children are gonna make the same promise in the same mirror. And if they don't break it, they're gonna pass it down to your grandkids. I love you. All right, why do you drink when you hurt or when you feel things that you don't wanna feel? These are fun, aren't they? I mean, when, when emotional things or things come up in my life, um, I, I want to numb it, and so I look for something to numb it. I, I take medication or I go to a bottle. Um, why is that? Because you have, for generations, you have seen individuals, rather than deal with the emotional scars and the hurt of past uh, problems, they just drink themselves into a numbness where they don't have to feel. And, and watch this. You, you swore to yourself you wouldn't do that. And now you find yourself doing it. You're hiding things, you're, uh, you're going to them, and your kids, you think no one will know, and they do. I promise you, I grew up in a house like that. Why do you spend money to feel full or accepted? You know, to feel like I have achieved or I've accomplished a certain level of life, I, we may make decisions in our life that we should drive this type of vehicle or live in this size of home or wear this name brand of clothes. Or, and so, so maybe it was, it, was, it was passed on. Maybe it was behavior that we saw. Or maybe it wasn't a generational curse as much as it was an inner vow that you made. Because when you were a little boy, a little girl, you had to wear Buster Browns, right? You, you, everybody else got to wear uh, the, the nice clothes, and you made an inner vow. You'll never let your kids wear those clothes because you remember feeling a certain way when you were on the bus or when you were at the playground, and, and you made an inner vow. It wasn't a generation curse. It was an inner vow, but guess what? You'll pass those along too. <laughs> Either Y'all still love me? Hang on. I got a couple more. All right, one more, one more. Why do you validate your worth by other people? What, what, and we're, we're good at this sometimes because maybe you saw your parents say, hey, listen, we, we may not be as good as the Smiths, but we're a lot better than the Joneses, amen? And we'll validate our worth, maybe even our worth in Christ based upon other people uh, in our circle. So, so, so lessons about living. Uh, here's the third one. And we see it right here. Um, short-term pleasures will rob you of long-term blessings. This is exactly what Esau did. He, he came in from hunting. He was weary, the Bible said, but he was hungry. In fact, he sounds a lot like Jude. He walked in, he's like, I'm about to starve to death, right? Is Jude about to starve to death? No, he ate 15 minutes ago, right? He wouldn't know a hunger pain if it hit him, right? I mean, it's never, he's never been a day in his life where he's hungry. None of my boys have. 
But they say that, we're like, I'm starving to death. Here's Esau, he walks in, and, and little brother, he can smell the stew when he walks up. He's like, I gotta have me some of that. And, and he walks in, and he's famished, and he's weary, and, and, and he says, listen, give me some stew. I got to have some of it. I can smell, I can almost taste it. It smells so good. And what does Jacob say? Jacob's a little conniving in this, but Jacob, Jacob has wanted the birthright since birth. I mean, he was holding him by the heel, trying to keep him and pull him back in. And so here, here he says, hey, give me your birthright. I'll, I'll give you, man, I'll give you a bowl of stew. I'll give you bread too. You give me your birthright. You know what Esau said? I don't care about a birthright. I'm hungry. Well, watch what he gave away in a moment of, of, of pleasure. A, a short-term pleasure robbed him of long-term blessing. We're disconnected from birthright. Um, in fact, if, if uh, you, you have uh, gone through a, a will or you've lost your parents and uh, you have siblings, uh, the will when, uh, if, if your parents had a will, even if not, um, all of the, uh, er everyone inherits uh, equal amount. Now, if there's a will was written, uh, they get to determine who gets what and all of that stuff. But, uh, but in this day, everything goes to the eldest, 100%. Now, I don't like that because I'm the baby. <laughs> but, but Esau would have gotten all of it. That, that, that was the culture because he would have carried on the family, he would have carried on the name, and uh, he would have inherited everything. And, uh, but, it, but listen, he gave all of that away for, for a bowl of soup. And Isaac was wealthy. Isaac had got Abraham's wealth. In fact, we studied this Wednesday night. Uh, he, Abraham had Ishmael, and Abraham even had six more sons with another lady after Sarah died. So he has eight sons total, and Ishmael's the oldest, and Abraham said, give everything I have to Isaac because he was the son of promise. And so he got 100% of it, and the other seven brothers got nothing. And so... Esau, in a moment of wanting to fill his stomach, said, uh, I don't care about a birthright. And, and he made, now look, we'll do the same thing in our life. Momentary, short-term pleasures will rob us of long-term blessings. We see it in our children's life. We see it acted out in, in a lot of people's lives. The birthright was inheritance, but it was also blessing. Later on, we're going to study this, that, um, that Isaac would gather... Um, uh, Jacob and uh, together and Jacob deceived him because Esau should have gotten the blessing Jacob got the blessing Esau was the oldest um, but but in that moment he he gave he gave away the blessing it was prophecy from his father um, prophesying over his future and blessing his future he sold his future for the present you know what else he gave away with his birthright Jesus for a, for a bowl of soup, his inheritance, his father's blessing, and the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus would have been born to Esau, but Jesus, it would have been uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But at that moment, it turned from Abraham, Isaac, and Esau to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, Jesus would later say, I am the great I am. I am a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, uh, and so Esau, to fill his belly, a momentary decision to fill a short-term pleasure, robbed 
him of a long-term blessing that he couldn't even see. He gave Jesus away. All right, fourth one. Lessons about living. Oh, I gotta hurry. Here's the fourth one. Faith in Jesus is often passed to the next generation. You, you make a decision if you're gonna live in, by faith in Jesus Christ and that faith will be passed down oftentimes um, to the next generation. Now, it's not 100% of the time, but I can tell you this, it's a greater chance that your children will love Jesus if you decide to love him. It's a greater chance that your grandchildren will fall in love with Jesus if you make a decision to fall in love with Jesus. If you make a commitment to love Jesus as, a, as, a, as the patriarch or the matriarch of the family, it is a greater chance that your children, your grandchildren, and all of those following you will fall in love with Jesus as well. And so we see all of that in this story. Trust God. God's plan, even when you struggle with his timing, generational curses, you, you can carry them or you can break them. And then short-term pleasures will rob you of long-term blessings. And, and your faith in Jesus oftentimes will be passed down to your, uh, to your descendants, the next generation. All right, third, third lessons, group of lessons. Really, it's not a group. It's just one under this. Lessons about legacy. You know, I don't know about you, but I want my life to outlive me. I, 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 want, um, I want to make decisions now to outlive my physical life. I want to leave a legacy for my boys uh, to follow, a legacy of, of faith. Now, now watch this. Jacob, Jacob will become the father of the Israelites. J Jacob will have boys. Essentially, those boys will be the, the fathers of the tribes of, of, of Israel. And he will, you got Abraham and then Isaac, well, Jacob will essentially be the father of the Israelites. Now, watch this. Esau, he, they named him Red in this. And I want the red stew. They said his name's Edom. Red. What does that mean? Esau became the father of the Edomites. You remember what God told Rebekah? There's two nations in you, the Israelites and the Edomites. They're, they're both in your womb right now. She didn't get it, didn't understand what that meant, but, but God was telling her that these two boys would be the father of nations. Now, why is that significant? There was strife in them from before they were born. They were fighting in the tomb, or fighting in the womb, not the tomb, the womb. They, they were fighting even in life, struggling with who was going to be uh, favorite, who was going to be, uh, who was going to have the birthright. And then if you fast forward through your Bible and you get into the gospel, there's a young couple, they're not married yet. There was a decree that had gone out that that whole ancient Roman world was going to be taxed and so for it to be taxed it had to be counted and so this decree went out that everyone had to go back to their hometown well that, that was a big undertaking because this young couple lived in Nazareth about 80 or 90 miles away from Joseph's hometown which was Bethlehem and so he loaded his greatly pregnant wife on the back of a donkey and took her uh, 80 to 90 miles through rough terrain to get to Bethlehem where it was, it was his 
hometown. And, uh, and they get there and they have the, it would, it would be time for her to be delivered and they would have a baby. Now, I know that you're familiar with this because this is a Christmas story, but uh, there were uh, wise men that came from the east. And before they made it to Jesus with their gifts, they stopped off in Jerusalem. And uh, if, if there's a king that they're looking for, the first stop would be a palace, right? I mean, so they go to the palace. Um, and there was a man occupying the throne in that palace in Jerusalem. His name was Herod. And uh, they spoke to Herod and they said, where's the king? Where's the king of the Jews? Where's the one we've come to worship him? And Herod didn't know who they were talking about. And uh, so he sent them away. But he said, listen, when, when you find him, come back and tell me because I want to worship him too. Now, that was a lie. Um, Herod wanted to kill him. Herod was threatened um, by a little baby. In fact, he had decided he didn't just hate this baby who was a Jew, who was an Israelite. He hated all Israelites. And so Herod made a decision that every child that had been born in a two-year period needed to be killed. So there was the massacre of the babies. In fact, when Joseph and Mary heard about it, they, they removed Jesus and took him to Egypt. Y'all, y'all remember all of this, right? And so, uh, so, so think about this. Jesus didn't have anybody to grow up with in the nursery. Jesus didn't grow up with anybody his own age. You ever thought about that? <laughs> That Jesus was removed from the massacre of the, of the children, and every Israelite child, two years and younger, was killed in hopes that Herod would kill the king. But he didn't just hate Jesus, he hated all Israelites. Really. He was the king in Israel, and he hated all Israelites. Why? Because Herod was an Edomite. He wasn't an Israelite. In fact, he was sitting on a throne that wasn't his throne. Do you know whose throne he was sitting on? He was sitting on Joseph's throne. The carpenter who lived in Nazareth, who was from Bethlehem in the genealogy, should have been occupying the throne in Israel over the Israelites, but, he would, but, the, but the king was an Israelite. He was an Edomite. And all the way back in the womb of Rebekah, the Israelites and the Edomites had been conflicting with each other they were raised up in the same home fighting just like brothers do and that all the way down through history we see an Edomite king hating and wanting to kill being threatened by Israelites and so this conflict what's the big deal the legacy this legacy that has has been brought down through generation after generation after generation and um, and you and I have to realize something the children and the grandchildren that we have the opportunity to pour our life into, they're going to be nations. Now, I know you're looking at your middle school grandkid and you're like, he won't even bathe. He's going to be a nation? <laughs> they think they won't clean up their room. Listen, we told our boys from the very beginning, you don't have to brush all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep, right? I mean, we kind of lowered the bar of hygiene just so that maybe we could get some of them knocked out and brushed. But when you raise up kids in your home, you look at them as children. You don't look at them as, as nations of people. If God blesses your children with children, guess what? It expands out. And he blesses those children with children and you have grandchildren and then later great-grandchildren and maybe you'll be in heaven but you'll be able to watch from the grandstands as that child that God blessed you with that you got to raise in their home becomes a nation of people. It's a legacy, isn't it? 
it makes a difference when we realize that and we look at what God's required or asking us to do as we raise up these kids in our home because there's lessons about, about legacy. That's what makes the big things important. That's what makes the lines that we talked about last Sunday in relationships and helping them, whether they're, we're, we're uh, setting up boundaries or building runways for their life. It makes sense when we look at them not as friends that grow up under the same roof that we do, but nations of people that will either take generational curses that we pass down into the future or they will run out into the future and they will raise up nations of people who will fall in love with Jesus and make him known all around the world. That's that's big stuff. Lessons. So what does that mean for you? Well, you may look at your life and your past um, decisions that you made in raising your kids. Your kids may already be raised, and you may look at it and say, boy, we blew it. We really made some poor decisions. Listen, there's grace over that. And then there's time to break generational curses now. I mean, you're not in heaven, and so you can break the generational curse in your family now you can change now this can be a moment that changes the trajectory of your family so well I'm not raising my kids already raised I got grandkids you can you can make a decision to trust Christ with a generational curse that was passed down to you you can hand that over to him this may be such a deep-rooted curse in your life that you can't even you, you you don't even remember conscious decisions that you've made but but you have noticed things in your life like what maybe you're prejudiced It's a generational curse. You're going to raise up generations of children and grandchildren, nations of people that will carry that with them unless it's broken in you. That's big. How can we ever convince the next generation to go to the ends of the earth, to reach the ends of the earth, if we look down on people because of the color of their skin? It's a generational curse, right? So some of these things, it may not be addiction in your life. It may not be uh, poor ways of handling conflict. The generational curse in your life may, may even be deeper than that. And so to, I just believe this. I believe today is the day that God wants to break those. And so let's do this. Let's bow our heads together. And maybe that looks like you just spending time alone with him in your pew and uh, talking to the Lord about that. Maybe it, um, maybe it looks and played out here at the altar um, maybe you just say, let's, let's go down and pray over this. You grab your spouse, you grab your kids, you come down and pray. Um, maybe what you just need today more than anything is just to come here and receive God's grace. Just be overwhelmed by his grace uh, this morning uh, from, from past blunders and mistakes. Maybe today you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. You realize all of us have sinned, but God showed us his love when he sent Jesus to die for us and, and he offers us salvation, not religion, not a, a membership in the Baptist church, but a relationship with him that, that goes Monday through Sunday or Saturday and every day in our life. Maybe you need to trade in uh, guilt for a relationship based upon grace. So whatever it is God's leading you to do, maybe you want to join First Baptist Hall and you've been coming for a while, but you want this place to be your home. We would love for you to come and join First Baptist Halton. Whatever it is God's leading you to do, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand. 
Our pastors will be here, and they'd love to pray with you, receive you, whatever God's leading you in your heart. Father, we love you. Take this time. Have your way. Fill this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, church.